Hi, my name is Rachel. The Old Testament reading is found in Ecclesiastes 1, 1 through 11. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness, a man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Amy. The New Testament reading is found in Philippians 3, 7 through 11. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Mary. And the gospel reading is found in Matthew 11, verses 28 through 30. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart and will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The gospel of the Lord. Praise be to our Lord Christ. Remain standing as we pray. Give us eyes, O Lord, that we might see Jesus. Give us ears, O Lord, that we might hear Jesus. And give us hearts, O Lord, that we might love and serve and follow Jesus. We pray these things to the glory of your name. Amen. You may be seated. There's a story the Greeks used to tell about a king named Sisyphus who despite his rather unfortunate name, had become very good at trickery. And so the story, as Homer tells, is that the punishment for King Sisyphus was that he was to roll a large stone up a hill and then onto the other side, except that every time he would get to the top of the hill, Zeus had enchanted the stone so that it would roll all the way back down. And so each day he'd say, okay, today's going to be the day. And he's pushing this large stone up to the top of the hill and says, this is the day that I outsmart the gods, only it rolls back down again. And then 
he gets up the next day, I'm going to try it again. And he does it. And as soon as he thinks he's going to get it this time, it rolls back down and on and on it goes. Now, you and I may not be as familiar with the myth of Sisyphus, but you and I do know this feeling every time we do laundry uh, or the dishes or anything else in our home. And you think, how is this never ending? Didn't I just do this? And I don't know if your kids do this, but our kids, their version sometimes of cleaning up their room means taking any clothes that are on the floor, clean or dirty, and just shoving them in the dirty clothes basket. And so then all of a sudden, you're like, wait a minute, did we just bring a basket up of clean clothes? And here's another two more baskets. And it just never ends pushing the stone up and then rolling it back down over and over and over again. This series that we're starting today is through the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's called Finding Joy. And maybe Ecclesiastes might be the last place you'd go to try to find joy. Because isn't Ecclesiastes all about the mundane and the meaningless, the stuff that we do over and over again, the repetitive stuff? You know what? I think Ecclesiastes is permission for you to actually say that sometimes life is meh, you know? I think Ecclesiastes is permission to say even the best things in life sometimes seem to disappoint. And it's not normally normal that we talk in church this way. Normally when we come to church, we want to have our Christian face on, we want to be blessed, we want to be happy and smiley, and someone, someone says, man, how's your job going? It's great! And you're thinking, just another week, same old, same old, you know? How are the kids? Wonderful! We're all blessed and highly favored of the Lord. You know, who talks like that? <laughs> you know? and, and, and you can't, you're not used to being able to be, to being given permission to be able to say in church, yeah, I mean, it's okay. I mean, it's fine. It's not that great, but it's not that bad. It's just meh, you know, meh. But maybe for some of you, Ecclesiastes is permission to say that. For others of you, Ecclesiastes is kind of a prophetic challenge to you. And here's what I mean. For some of you, you wake up Monday morning with the Lego theme song in your head, you know. Everything is awesome when you're part of a team, you know, and you're just like, you're just pumped, you know. You're just full of, of a sunny optimism. You just believe it. It's just so great, you know. And Ecclesiastes comes as a prophetic challenge that says, is it really? I mean, Really? Is it? And you're like, yes, because I'm living the dream. Everything is. And Ecclesiastes keeps saying, I'm not so sure. Really? And so part of the reason we're doing this series is twofold. One, we're doing it to give us permission to give voice to that feeling that sometimes even the best things in life leave us short. They kind of say, yeah, it was okay. And... To be a prophetic challenge to say, are you sure that this is joy? Are you sure that this is as good as it gets? Wisdom literature is the set of books in the Bible that really invite us to wrestle. See, the Bible, there's many different genres, many different types of writing in the Bible. And this is sometimes what can make it tricky. So during Lent, we journeyed through the gospel, the gospel according to John, and we took some of the last few chapters of of John's gospel that talk about Jesus' life before the cross. And 
That's a very different type of work. And then before that, we had done a series through one of John's letters, 1 John. A letter in the New Testament is very different than a gospel. Now, we, we've never really studied this before, but this book, Ecclesiastes, falls into the category called wisdom literature. It's, it's under the Hebrew writings. It's very different. Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes, these are some of the Old Testament wisdom literature. In the New Testament, you really see this in James. In fact, there's quite a few parallels between James and Ecclesiastes. The, the, the Old Testament chair at Fuller, who for years, they, the, the position, the department head of Old Testament studies is named actually after him, David Allen Hubbard. He's fa- he famously one day said this about the wisdom literature books in the Old Testament. He said, Proverbs says, do these things and life will work out this way. And Job and Ecclesiastes say, yeah, we did and it didn't. And so wisdom literature is not a set of rules. These aren't the Ten Commandments. These aren't prophetic utterances. These aren't hymns of praise to God. No, wisdom literature, it's not templates. It's not formulas. Wisdom literature invites us into the tensions of life and says, would you think a little bit about this? Would you wrestle? would Would you reflect on this? Now, this book, by tradition, is sort of attributed to Solomon, and there's no reason necessarily uh, to disagree with what verse 1 says. It very well could have been written by Solomon. Some other scholars think, for, for different reasons, because of the way the language is, that maybe it was written later, after the Jews returned from exile in Babylon. And it was written by people who were from the school of Solomon, who understood a Solomonic way of thinking. Use that at your next small group party, you know. Either way, this book was written at a time of peace and prosperity. Either way, this book was written at a time when people had time to think about the meaning of life. I mean, you know, listen, when you're running from your enemies, you're not contemplating the meaning of life. You're sort of saying, can we just, Lord, save us, right? But when times are good, when you finally have peace, when you finally have prosperity, those are the times to ask yourselves these difficult questions. Is this really joy? Is this really as good as it gets? And so when you think about Solomon, the person who's kind of the figure, the teacher in this book, in fact, it's, in, it's interesting, Ecclesiastes itself means the assembly or the gathering. It's kind of the church or the assembly of God's people. And the character in here is doing the talking, the teacher, the koholeth, is this is the person that it really could be described as the churchman. The church person, the church man, or the church lady, this is the the person that sort of has collected wisdom from following God. And when you think about Solomon as being possibly that person, you're thinking about someone who had everything there was to have, had money, had pleasure, had stuff, had all of these things, including wisdom. And so you're sitting down with him and you're saying, okay, okay, Solomon, imagine this, you find an older, wiser person in the congregation, you say, I'm going to ask them to coffee, I think I want them to maybe be a mentor in my life, I won't use that word because that might scare them off, but I think I want them to, and you sit down and you say, hey, listen, you've lived a while, you've seen a lot, you've accomplished a lot, you've achieved a lot, you've been faithful for a while, would you tell me some of your thoughts about life? And the person takes a sip of their Starbucks and sets the cup down and says, meaningless, Vanity of vanities, the preacher said. All this, and you think, I need a new mentor. (laughs) We've called part one today, Let's Get Cynical, to be sung to the tune of that other song, Let's Get Physical, but, you know, cynical, cynical. 
Verse 2, vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Now, this isn't a word we use every day, vanity. What does he mean by this? The Hebrew word here is havel, and it literally means a breath, a vapor, a mist. It's just short. It was here, and then it's gone. It was the morning mist that rolled in off the mountains, and by 9 o'clock was just gone. Where was that? Gone. Havel. It's, it's the word that the prophets use to talk about idols when it says, look, these idols, there's futility in worshiping these idols. These idols have no substance to them. And so the prophets say, Havel to the idols. No substance to these things. We're going to revisit that theme as we go on through this book. Havel is also the same word but pronounced differently that was the name for Adam and Eve's sec- second son, Abel. Because his life was but a breath. So quick. James in the New Testament says, your life is like a vapor. It's a mist. It's, don't say we're going to go to this city and do this business. and do, Say if the Lord wills, because remember, your life is just whew, a mist, a vapor. This is how Solomon opens his book. This is how he invites us into this wrestling to say it's all Empty. We're going to use that word empty, emptiness. And really in chapter one, he sets it up. We're going to go throughout this series, we're going to go through different themes. We're going to talk about pleasure. We're going to talk about knowledge. We're going to talk about work. We're going to talk about death. We're going to talk about all the different things in life. But in chapter one, the teacher just sets it up with this little poetic overview and says, let's talk about emptiness. And let's talk about the emptiness of work. And so in verse 3, he says, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? I mean, do you ever feel like that? You come back from a long week, you're driving home on a Friday, and you're like, what did I do this week? Oh, I don't know. You know, you come home, you're catching up with your spouse. How was your day? Pretty good. What would you do today? Oh, I don't know. Frankly, I don't even want to talk about it. Like, just who knows, you know? It's, you're just, it's like, It's empty. The emptiness of work. You come back from a business trip, you're in an airport sitting at the gate, yet another flight delay, and you're like, Havel. It's empty. Who cares? I mean, yeah, great. Met some people. You know, some were good, some were rude. You know, closed the deal, didn't close as much as I thought I could. Man, yeah, Havel. It's all empty. The emptiness of work sometimes under the sun. And then he talks about the emptiness of, of repetition. He says here in verse 4, he talks about all of this stuff in nature that is uh, a clue to the repetition. A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it goes to the north. Around and around goes the wind. I mean, what is this, like a Dr. Seuss book, you know? And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full to the place where the streams flow. There they flow again, again and again. Round and round it goes. Yesterday, we were doing some yard work. And when I say we, I mean mostly my wife because she is a farmer's daughter. And so this is sort of, uh, you know, fun for her. And so in our front, you know, we have the kind of this long driveway. And so she's 
finally raking up um, these, these piles of pine needles and dead leaves, and it's about time to get it out of the way so that if anything, anything like grass might just grow, we needed to get this off of it. And so I'm basically holding the bag, and she's raking it in, and there's like 16 bagfuls of this stuff, and there's still more to do. And the most depressing thing about it is how many more months before there's more dead leaves and dead pine needles? Spring, summer, fall, winter. Spring, summer, fall, winter. Are we doing this again? Why the repetitiveness? How are the dishes dirty again? Didn't we just load it last night? Why does my car need an oil change again? Havel! It's empty. Repetitive, repetitive. Repetitive. And then he talks about the emptiness of originality. I like this in verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing? There's that Dr. Seuss thing again. I don't know. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after it's really fun to listen to people who are in their 60s and their 70s look at amusement with all the things the kids are into these days and to say, oh, yeah, yeah, that was the 60s, you know. Oh, yeah, yeah, we've been there before. That was the 70s, you know. And to look at all of the different trends and to say, yep, yep. I mean, I, I'm, you know, a few years away from 40, but it's to the point now where I can look at a few things and say, oh, that was the 80s, <laughs> you know. Those big, baggy, colorful pants. Ever heard of MC Hammer? You know, like, come on, man, I got pictures. Or, you know, the, the young men with their long hair, hair buns on top, you know. It's like, dude, like, the samurais were there first, you know. Like, the, you know, this, this, is, this is not new. Like, this. <laughs> mustaches, hipster mustaches. Like, I'd like to introduce you to Magnum P.I., you know. <laughs> What has been <laughs> will be again. This is all coming around. There's nothing new. The emptiness of originality. Oh, good for you. You're unique, just like everybody else. <laughs> You're full of angst and uncertainty. Yes, just like the rest of your friends. On and on, the teacher says, it's all, yeah, sure. What do we do with all of this? Isn't it interesting that the teacher is focused here on the world under the sun. Life under the sun. Life under it. Life right here. Life that we can see. Now, even though Solomon lived in a world where everybody believed in some sort of God, whether it was the gods or God, there was some sense that there was something or someone beyond this. Yet the focus on life under the sun actually is an amazing parallel with our culture today. Because we live in a world that is fixated on life under the sun. Everything that we can see and know here. Charles Taylor, one of the great philosophers at Oxford, wrote this amazing thick book called A Secular Age. I've not read it. But there's another philosopher at Calvin College named James K.A. Smith who wrote a 90-page summary and, 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 and critical interaction with this book called How Not to Be Secular. I've read that. And Smith talks about the way that Taylor describes how we became the secular age that we are today and what the territory of it is like. What does it mean to say this? 
And one of the, the analogies that they use, it's either Smith or Taylor, that says it, is that it's kind of like being at a sporting event in the evening with a retractable dome, and just when the stars are coming out, they close the dome. But sadly, everybody's so taken with the events on the field, with the game on the field, that nobody's missing the stars. That's kind of like our world. We've closed the heavens to transcendence. It's not so much that there's an atheism in our day as much as there is an agnosticism or an indifference. Kind of this, well, there might be a God, there might not be a God. I'm not sure why it matters. And so the heavens have been closed to where we say, ah, we don't even need the stars. Maybe people needed the stars to navigate back in the day, but I've got my GPS on my phone. I I don't need the stars. We don't need transcendence. We don't need anything that makes us look up and above and beyond this world. Everything that we want is right here under the sun. But Taylor goes on. He says, look, human beings can't live without meaning. So if we don't get our meaning from transcendence, then we're going to create, we're going to write narratives of meaning that work right here. Now, you, you, may, you may think, well, I don't, I don't know anybody who talks like that. No, but you have heard people who say, you know what? Let me tell you, man, the secret to life is just getting the right job. And once you do what you love, you'll never work a day of your life. And Solomon says, baloney. That's a lie. But we construct these narratives of meaning. Oh, the key is in your job. Or maybe you say, you know, the key is just to have the right family or the right friends or the right community. And if you would just have these people or these relationships, or maybe if you'd get married, or maybe if you'd have children, or maybe if you'd buy a better house. This is the narrative of meaning. This is what gives meaning to our closed heavens world. And you can't help but feel like that's a lie, too. You can't help but feel like... I don't know if that's true. I've got that. And and even the best things in life leave me short. Leave me feeling like there's more. What is it? This is why Ecclesiastes is such a useful book because it helps us see (laughs) the edges of this world we've constructed. The edges of a world without any transcendence. A world that is only life under the sun. And in a sense, there is a need, there's a necessary cynicism, a necessary cynicism that makes us say, wait a minute, I see a loose thread with that little narrative about meaning. I see a loose thread here that says if you just have the right job, I'm going to pull on that loose thread, and all of a sudden you unravel the whole thing, and you're like, oh no, Havel, it's empty, just as I feared. The new job, the new relationship, the new friendship, the new vacation. I've just begun to pull on that thread and it all unraveled emptiness even here. There's a necessary cynicism cynicism that is meant to kind of wake us up. You know what I think of? I think of that scene in the Truman Show. Have you ever seen it? Where Jim Carrey's character, he's living on a TV set but he doesn't know it, you know? He gets out, goes to work. I mean, the first half of the movie is that everything is awesome, you know? Going to work, doing all the stuff. Hello, hey, wave at you. And all of a sudden, he starts to get a clue that, you know, this isn't all that it's cracked up to be. And he starts to get the sense that there's something beyond, something's wrong with the world as he's known it. And there's that moment in the movie where he finally gets in the boat, in the lake, and begins to row. And they all tell him, don't go. It's just the sky. It's just the sky that you're seeing. It's just the horizon that you're seeing. And he says, no, I've got to find out for myself. And he rows the boat, and he rows. He gets to the edge of the lake, and he finds not the sky, 
but a painting of the sky. It's not actually the horizon. It's a painting of the horizon. And he runs right up into it. He says, whoa, wait a minute. He bangs on it, and finally the door opens, and he discovers, I'm living in a set of a TV show. See, I think that's like you and me. All around us, all the, all the messaging that we get from advertisers and from our friends and from our culture and from every magazine that you see at the grocery store, all of it says, look, it's all here. Life under the sun is good. And you really, you're just not in the right relationship or you just don't have the right job. Or you just don't have the right friends. And, and, and if you could just arrange things in the right way. And Ecclesiastes says, you know what? Go ahead and try it. Go ahead and try it. Solomon in chapter 2 will say, I tried it all. I rode my boat to the edges of this world, and what I found was a brick wall. What I found was emptiness. What I found was Havel. And so there is a kind of cynicism that is necessary, not as an ending point, not as a way of saying, yeah, I am going to stop here, not as a way of stopping. There's a cynicism that is a way of getting us to find the door out. Find out how we open the roof to the heavens again. See, when you ask ultimate things from temporal things, all you will get is chavel, emptiness. When you try to search for ultimate joy from temporary joys, all you will get is the feeling of emptiness. I want to just foreshadow this, that as we get on in the book, the answer is not going to be to say, Who cares about earthly joys? Just give me spiritual ones. That's not the answer at all. At the risk of ruining the rest of the series, I'm going to tell you that the moment that you accept the limitations of a thing, you can then accept the gifts of the thing. And once you recognize that temporal things can't give you ultimate joys, but they can give you some joy, then you can go to it and receive good gifts from God and recognize that those aren't ultimate. That's what Ecclesiastes frees us to do. But it says, look, if you insist on finding ultimate joy in these things, all you're going to get is a breath, a vapor, emptiness, hollowness. Don't do it. Don't do it. It's amazing to compare Solomon as the teacher with Jesus the rabbi, the great teacher, capital T, Solomon talks about life under the sun, and Jesus comes and he starts talking about the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom that comes from the heavens, Matthew's phrase. Solomon says, this is what life under the sun is like, and Jesus says, yeah, but this is what the kingdom that comes from the heavens is like, and this is what it means for your life under the sun. The two are different. And so over and over again throughout this series, we're going to be turning from Solomon to Jesus to say this is, the, this is all that this teacher could give, but now look at what this teacher can give. You see, the best that Solomon can do is to point us to the emptiness of life, but the best that Jesus can do is to offer us the fullness of life. John 10, 10, Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, to kill and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. See, the answer is not to say, okay, great, great, it's all empty, cool, so when do we go to heaven? That's not the goal. The goal is to say, all right, so if all of these things are just a breath, then is there something else that brings life? Yes. 
His name is Jesus. And Jesus is the one who says, look, you're searching for ultimate things from these temporal things, and they will always leave you dry. They will always leave you wanting more. They'll always let you down. But I am the one that gives you life. Breath is what we use to describe the things of this world. But Jesus, after the resurrection, found his disciples and breathed on them and said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus gives the breath that is true life and sends us back to the emptiness of our work and our repetitiveness and all of the stuff that we do over and over again. And he sends us back, not empty, but he sends us back now full, but full of his breath, full of his life. So yes, the things of this world are a breath, but Jesus' breath is filled with life, true life. Some of you this morning, you're listening to this and you're thinking, well, Glenn, I I felt that way before, but actually at the moment, life is pretty good. Actually, at the moment, uh, things are nice. We're about to go on a good holiday, and we, we, we've got uh, a new promotion. Oh, things, are, things are pretty good. That's great. You know what this morning is your occasion to do? This morning is your invitation to say, as good as these things are, I count them as loss to gain the only thing worth having. That's why our New Testament reading this morning was Philippians. It's Paul saying, you want to talk about good? I got good. What what do you got? I'll tell you all the stuff I've got. And then he says, but you know what? As good as it is, I'd consider it rubbish, a loss, for the sake of gaining the only thing worth having, knowledge of Jesus Christ. So if you're here this morning and life is good, this is your invitation to say, okay, But even the goodness of life is nothing, is havel compared to the blessedness of knowing Christ. And maybe you're sitting here this morning and you're feeling a profound tiredness, a weariness to the bone. It's what Solomon says in verse 8. He says, all things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. It's just full of weariness, weary to the bone. It's the kind of weariness that a nap can't cure and a good night's sleep can't cure. It's the kind of weariness that you're not sure how to shake. The weariness that comes from just the same old. Hear the words of Christ our Savior. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Hear the words of Christ our Savior. Come to me. Don't Bring these ultimate longings to these temporal things. All you'll get is Havel. But come to me, and what you'll find is rest.